Welcome everyone to Doomer Optimist Unite, Systems Change, Bioregionalism, and Localism. I'm Albert Kim, founder of Noetic Nomads, a community of radical thinkers and doers co-creating a more beautiful future. Uh, I'll post a Discord link uh, later in the chat where you could join us and co-create these kinds of sessions with us. And I'd like to thank everyone for gathering here today to take part in a co-creation of not just what may be a generative conversation, but the kickstarting of a regenerative experience for ourselves, our communities, and our planets. Uh, the origin of today's session was our uh, Noetic Nomads Nexus event. We held a couple weeks back uh, after our event with Forrest Landry. Uh, for those unaware, Nexus was a little shindig we put together to figure out next steps for what we'd like to see in the noosphere. And uh, one of our attendees happened to be, yes, Ashley Colby, um, founder of Rhizoma Field School and the upcoming Sulo Fair local e-commerce platform. I'm pretty sure we'll get into that uh, this session. And um, Ashley joined our Discord afterwards and mentioned her work. And I was like, wow, that's some super awesome stuff she's doing on moving people toward regenerative lifestyles. And and I could just feel the passion emanating from her, which is, uh, I guess, something that uh, I'm very attuned to. And uh, so Ashley wanted to co-create a more beautiful future and she wanted to do it fast. So I was like, let's do it. And here we are. So this is how the local bioregenerative virtual sausage gets made, people. And joining Ashley today is someone who has been my personal go-to when it comes to metamodern localism, homesteading, permaculture, as well as all things nut and nut butter related. Co-host of the amazing podcast, Both And with Jared James, which of course is still live, but just in hibernation, right? An attendee of our next generation of sense makers and change makers event back in December and facilitator for today's conversation with Ashley and our fellow bioregenerators and attends today. He goes by Cognizor, but I'll go with his normie name for today, Jason Snyder. So I would like to start by thanking you both, Ashley and Jason, for being here with us today. And I will briefly go over today's format. So our session will last around 90 minutes. Uh, we'll start with Jason and Ashley in dialogue, uh, where they'll discuss topics concerning systems change, bioregionalism, and localism, as well as their work and experience in this space, such as with uh, Ashley's uh, Rhizoma Field School and Sewell Fair. And uh, later on, we'll move to audience Q&A and group discussion. Uh, you could put your question statements in the chat. And I'll call on you to unmute yourself and ask uh, your question or give your statement, or you, I can do so on your behalf if you wish. Okay, so let's now start our festivities. And I'd like to begin by asking uh, Jason and Ashley about their personal background and how they came into this space of local regenerative lifestyles. And uh, Jason, I will now turn it over to you. Can you please lead us off? Yeah, okay. Well, I'm kind of a baby in the space. Um, my training was in applied economics, food systems, um, but it was coming from a very technocratic kind of point of view. And in the last two years or so, I've, I've basically come to reject that paradigm. Uh, and I'm in a place now that where I'm, you know, uh, with colleagues that I'm aligned with, but, um, you know, through the influence of people like Joe Norman, who's here, people like Joe Brewer and the bioregional regeneration scene, uh, many others, other influences. You mentioned metamodern. You know, all of these things kind of, kind of mixed together. 
um, you know, uh, eventually kind of moved in this direction. Um, the direction is, you know, I'm very interested in, in local food systems and regenerative food systems. Like food is kind of like my center, but in general, you know, um, ecological regeneration, uh, cultural regeneration. Uh, I'm a new homesteader and uh, yeah, and I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher of young minds. Um, I'll pass it on to Ashley. Thanks. Um, thanks both of you for being here and everybody. I'm starting to see for the first time who I am now Twitter friends with. Twitter is very weird. I'm, I'm relatively new to it. So I'm like, it's, uh, it's a learning curve. Okay, so I, um, I don't know, I guess briefly, I moved to Uruguay in 2016, um, with the understanding that um, I'm looking for to both live an alternative livelihood, whatever that might mean, that might be sustainable, might be regenerative, um, and then to teach about what I experience um, both through like my scientific understanding of it. I have my PhD in environmental sociology and also just my like, <laughs> to use a tired phrase, lived experience of it. Um, so I actually first started getting into regenerative agriculture um, before I knew what it meant. I just like thought the term made more sense than sustainable because <laughs> I'm like sustainable. You just want to sustain something forever. But regenerative like that sounds better. It sounds like it's building up capacities, building up health or diversity or whatever. And I didn't even really know what it meant. And then basically over the past four years, I've been learning what regenerative agriculture means. And I like continue to have aha moments that are changing my entire way of thinking about how humans should relate to the environment. Um, so yeah, so basically I'm just on this like path of figuring those things out and coming up with some solutions and then sharing what at least I think I know up until this point, and then you know, working with other people doing similar kind of kind of stuff. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Jason, Ashley, and um, so again, I, I like to turn it over to to Jason. Um, I know, like, you consider yourself a baby in this, so I must be like, I don't know, a zygote because <laughs> I, I have no idea what's going on. But like, I'm very interested in like uh, just, just listening to like uh, your exploration of these topics, and uh, yeah. Uh, perhaps yeah, I'll just turn over you and perhaps just get into it, and we'll move into Q and A and audience participation later on. Yeah, well, I'd like to, you know, I, I really want to um, uh, uh, interrogate Ashley and her experience because I, I think she has a lot of experience. And so wait, I have a question for you, Jason, uh -oh. or I'm wondering if we uh -huh. can do something together okay. when we, at, the, at the top of this hour. Okay. Can we because we I think we basically co-created this term. I don't remember who said it first. Doomer mm -hmm. Optimist. Yeah. Um, can we define that like to, yeah. for, for like the world premiere definition of Doomer Optimist live? Here? Okay, so maybe one of us should do Doomer and one of us should do Optimist. <laughs> All right, uh, which do you feel better about? I can well, do Optimist. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be the Doomer. Um, you know, if we take, if we take um, the, our climate and ecological situation seriously, uh, given our, our current uh, techno-capital globalist system is pretty dire. Uh, and it's not just ecologically, but I think, uh, you know, a lot of elements of the kind of global capitalist system has stripped communities of any kind of culture, of any kind of tradition, um, you know, both uh, you can say around the world, indigenous communities, but also just, you know, rural America has been hollowed out. 
um, in, in many ways. And it's, it's nothing like what it used to be. Um, and so this combination of ecological uh, precarity, you know, precarity that, that we're in, as well as kind of the cultural hollowing, hollowing out um, seems to, to be setting us up for a disaster. Um, crumbling of civilization, you know, the end of days, um, you know, get ready, get ready for death. So that's, that's doomers. Now, now bring in the optimists. The optimist okay. Side. So, so then like, um, the structural conditions can therefore be ripe for change mm -hmm. and change can go in many directions. And the optimist part comes in where you can see the, the points of agency, I would say, um, to shift change into a positive direction, a sustainable direction, a regenerative direction. So uh, a good example we were riffing on is, um, okay, so rural farmland that's now farmed by like giant tractors and their giant tracts of land with very few people can't continue for whatever planetary boundaries or soil health or whatever, it, something will collapse. And that's a doomer part. But then that means uh, land will be considered useless and cheap and then people can be will be able to afford it and then get onto it and regenerate it um because basically there's no other choice but to do that it's like that or starve mm -hmm. so it's like these points at which there are there are possibilities for positivity in in the midst of the doomer the doomer you know material reality Right. I, I'm not I'm not so religious anymore, but I used to be religious. I used to be a member of the Baha'i faith. And one thing that they talk about is the collapsing of the old world, world order and the building of the new in kind of parallel. And so that was kind of ingrained into me, even though I, I'm not of that particular religion anymore. And that but that's still kind of how I see the world is that I just see that the current, you know, the, the current way that we produce things, that we eat things, that you know, that we trade things, it's just not sustainable and it's certainly not regenerative. Uh, and I don't think this kind of complexity of the global system that is, I would say, is more extractive than regenerative. I, I just don't think it can maintain itself. Uh, and so there's going to be crumbling. It's not going to be overnight. It's like, you know, punctuated decline, you could say. But I think each crumble is going to open up avenues for regeneration. It's going to you know, just like with this pandemic, you know, a lot of people, you know, if they're, <clears throat> if they're fortunate, are able to, to do more remote work. Of course, it's not everybody, but, you know, and that might free you up to, you know, get some land, start a garden, something like that. And so, you know, it's a potential opportunity, even though it's, it's also a disaster. Um, and, but I, I think maybe, maybe now, Ashley, we can get into to your, your research and what you discovered in Chicago with this kind of shadow food system that, you know, is largely ignored by policymakers, by politicians, you know, uh, many others. I'm just yeah, so, um, <laughs> they can't see me uh, though. Th somebody's uh, mic is on. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, where to start? I, I guess this ties in. So like I used this uh, theory that to me, I, like I really hate almost, not almost all, but many of the most popular sociological theories because they're like just don't have strong explanatory power in my opinion. They don't make sense to me. They're just like 
popular because people like them. And a lot of times it's because they're very jargon heavy. But I use this theory that's not popular at all called dual process theory. Um, but it came, came, up by, came up with by Morris Berman, who's a former sociologist who, who fleed to Mexico. And dual process is basically like systems collapse, societies collapse, and then something comes about next. So he uses the Roman Empire collapsing and then out of that in the period of time when um, when the Roman Empire was crumbling, there were these sort of like a bunch of different mystery cults that kind of were like Christianity and then Christianity kind of came out and then there's a new world order as Holy Roman Emperor. And um, I liked that because it's just like, oh yeah, we're obviously in a collapse and it's just this period where like as things uh, continue to decline, people will have to try to meet their needs some way or another. Um, and then when they're meeting their needs, they're basically developing alternative systems to meet those needs. So, so I started interviewing people who um, produce food for their own consumption. And I would say this, there's, there's informal economics happening literally all over the world that is so far off the radar of any policymaker, scientist, sociologist, like basically anyone. There are just so many informal economies that nobody pays attention to that I think are, are really places that we need to look at um, and, and be involved with to try to imagine what the next system might look like um, because the current system is very globalized it's very on the books it's very formal that's the hegemonic system but there are there continue to exist all these alternative systems um, so basically what i found is that there are these people they produce food for themselves in chicago i i um inclusion in the study was at least 50 percent of food needs and it's just self-reported but close enough um, you get the idea and when people started producing food for themselves, um, a lot of times for people who were new to it, it started out as like this um, individualized activity similar to something that's been critiqued a lot in sociology, like buying organic or buying bottled water. Like instead of fixing the quality of the public water source, you just buy bottled water and that's your solution to like health and access. Um, and that's been critiqued as like a like a neoliberal or an individualized solution to things. Um, but in the case of production, it's a little bit different from consumption because people actually need to figure out how to do this stuff. So like chickens is always the example I use. It's pretty easy to understand. Somebody's new to keeping chickens. They like want to find other people who know how to keep chickens. They need to source feed. They have to find a coop. They have to deal with pests and diseases. And that forces them out of their individual bubble of like chicken keeper and into this sort of practical community. And then all sorts of really cool um, sort of shadow structures that is the name I call it, but I actually don't even really like that term that much. Just alternative economies, po political systems, political networks of people who can work in concert spring up um, because they have this tie over this practical activity. Um, and so I'm pretty hopeful actually about the possibility that arises from these kinds of communities. So the, the title of, of the presentation today, you know, after Doomer Optimism is System Change, Bioregionalism and Localism. Maybe we should kind of go through each of these terms and what we mean. So it seems like you're kind of talking about systems change. Um, in that framing of systems frame change, is there anything that you want to add to, to that? 
Um, I can add more as we go along, but basically mm -hmm. the way I see systems change happening is um, I think probably the opposite of at least at least how it's taught in sociology classrooms or generally how you think of systems change, which is like we identify a problem, which is, okay, if you're just some like person at a liberal arts college, it's, it's like neoliberal capitalism or something like that or patriarchy or whatever. And then you have to like imagine what the alternative to that system is. And then maybe it's like degrowth or donut economics or like feminist solidarity economies, whatever it is. And you have to imagine that entire system, how it should be, and then put it into place through like protest or uh, trying to get politicians to listen to you. And I just think this is like the most implausible theory of social change. It doesn't seem right. Um, it doesn't amen. seem plausible. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I don't know if I'm supposed to interject. I just said, amen. We got an amen. So oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. And so it's like, it's, it's so weird because we just think like, yeah, let's imagine the entire next system. And then the way we change it is just to like, go to our politicians and say like adopt feminist solidarity economies like in what world do you live so um i think of it more like uh these people who find practical things to cling on to and to do and that provide meaning to them and not just meaning but also food sometimes or things meet actual material needs um, start doing these things and making networks with other people who are who have similar interests and then basically, um, well, what happened in Chicago was that um, a politician tried to ban chicken keeping and then this group banded together because they're more likely to, to um, protect their ability to do this thing that's already tried and tested that they love and that brings them meaning and food than they are um, to go appeal to that politician in advance, can we please change the system top down but instead like, no, we're already doing this thing and we're gonna protect it. And then there's a back and forth play. So that's how I see systems change playing out. And there's more yeah. details in there, but I'll leave it there. Do you think that the people who kind of rose up to protect their chicken keeping economy, do you think they all agreed politically? Like they all had, were they all- No, were they no, and that's, an, that's an important point. They did not, I know they didn't because I talked to a lot of them. And the reason they all came to chicken keeping was like, it was, uh, 60 people that I interviewed, it was like 60 different reasons with all different kind of nuance, which to me like really points to how we're not gonna agree on like the, the problems with the system. There's so many different explanations. The system is way too complex for us all to understand like the problems behind it. Um, so it was nice because they could just agree on what the solution was and they didn't even really have to talk about the politics. And we can talk more about like how ideology plays a role or not. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like because there was an actual real tangible um, problem or solution um, that, you know, people uh, were, were, were able to kind of act collectively without, you know, agreeing on every single point in a, in a lecture hall, for example. And I yeah. Think well, and not, bring that yeah, up, and not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Reason, no, the reason I bring that up is I think that a lot of people in the intellectual space and, you know, I think most of us who are on Twitter and stuff are guilty of this. You know, we, we close doors, you know, we, we, we burn bridges because we agree, we disagree over 
you know, esoteric intellectual topics, right? But when there's actually, when you're actually, you know, surrounded by neighbors that don't all agree with you, uh, you have different politics, but there's actually like a real issue that, you know, you need to band together to, to deal with, you know, that's, it sounds like that's where real change can happen. Totally, totally. And I think, yeah, and I, I would just argue that, um, you know, the ideology part, <laughs> I think, is what we all engage in because we think that's the way social change happens. So we're like, got to get to work, figuring out the right system. Like, let's focus on this. Let's write some reports. Let's get the IPCC reports out. Like, we got to figure out this system so we can tell everybody. Um, but those those things have are just like not, they don't change politics at all. They don't change the material world, like almost at all. Um, there's just constantly these IPCC reports that are like 1.5 degrees, two degrees, 2.5 degrees. Like they're like, it's getting worse and they keep writing the reports. Um, and so people think like, this is what I really need to dedicate myself to is figuring out the right system. Um, but I think if my, if I, if I get no message across today at all, uh, the main message to take away is to like go try anything and then that's how you figure out what the next system will be. It's literally by testing material world ideas, not the other way around. Um, and I know that's scary because it was scary for me when I started doing it and it continues to be scary. But it's like I think it's really is all, all there is. Nice. So I want to get into your experience in, in, in Uruguay, but first I want to, let's, let's define these other terms. So, so, so what is localism and bioregionalism? Why, why are we using these two different words? Are they, are they different? Are they the same? Are they aligned? Um, yeah. I'm you, why don't you start with bioregionalism? Because yeah. that's like your wheelhouse and I want to hear what you, how you define it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, not, it's definitely, you know, there, it's definitely not not my wheelhouse. I'm, a, I'm kind of a LARPer, but, um, you know, I, I tend to see... <laughs> We're all LARPers until yeah, it becomes real. It's okay. That, that's right. Well, you know, so if we define <laughs> localism as a minimum viable scale, it's the term that I actually got from Joe, uh, Joe Norman. Uh, I see bioregions as a really important scale. So I see kind of like a village, you know, as, as, a, as a very important scale where uh, you actually know your neighbors, uh, but at the bioregional level, because there's kind of ecological and cultural coherence, it kind of it kind of gives coherence to a network of villages, yeah. um, more coherence than say a state would with you know artificial boundaries. Uh, and so, I, I really see you know them bioregionalism and localism aligned. Bioregionalism is just is just one particular scale that can be very empowering to to organize beyond say the village, you know, or the small town level. Um, it can bring uh, coherence in terms of kind of local economies. You know, I don't think every village is gonna be self-sufficient, right? In, in this kind of localist vision. But, you know, so when we're thinking about like, at what scale can we really start to be self-sufficient or not quite, like I still think, you know, there's still gonna be trade, you know, there's still gonna be trade across, you know, across scales and across regions, but, you know, at, at the scale where you can really have a robust, uh, a robust economy uh, and a sustainable, equitable, uh, regenerative economy. The bioregional scale is is a really helpful um, lens, especially when you're thinking about, as Joe Brewer puts it, designing around landscapes um, and and doing it um, in, in a way that doesn't 
infringe upon, you know, infringe upon the sovereignty of, of more local localized villages, but works with them in, in, a, in a process where their voice is also heard. Uh, that, that's how I would relate the two. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, that, I mean, that basically sounds right to me. I, like, I don't know, um, I'm actually relatively new to like the theory behind localism. I don't, Joe, do you, are you able to talk right now? Do you want to be put on the spot to define what localism means Go to ahead, you? Go ahead, Joe. Do you, uh, yeah, I'll be put on the spot. I, I, I don't know if I'll, I'll offer a really good definition. You know, it's something I've been uh, working on articulating a few aspects of. I think there's the political aspect, which has to do with how politics are structured. Um, you know, one of the when we talk about localism, we try to it's easy to start talking about very, very hyper local things, you know, my homestead, my village and things like that. But one of the key ideas is that we're talking about a multi scale structure, which is what Jason's talking about when he's saying, well, the bioregionalism is really this this sort of next scale up from something like a village. So you have a village and you have a collection of villages that have some relation to one another. And that's maybe in a, in a certain kind of bioregion where there's a, there's a continuity of the ecosystems in some sense, you know, watersheds are obviously um, really important boundary points. Um, so there's that, there's sort of the political structure side of things, but then there's just the cultural side, which is, I think actually at this point to, to your points, Ashley, around you know, how will systems change? Is it by, you know, voting the right way or what, what is, how are we going to change this thing? And I think actually just in, you know, different places in the world have different constraints, but where I am in the U S for instance, there's the constraints are loose enough that I can just start changing my practices without, you know, doing too many illegal things um, and, and kind of fly under the radar, et cetera. And so the cultural aspect of localism, I, th I think, is wrapped up in what I'm glad Jason remembered because because I didn't. This idea of minimal minimum viable uh, scale, and of course things can you know minimum viable could mean that there's some uh, fragility there, or lack of redundancy. So so it's it's a great kind of thing, but um, this idea of of especially dependencies and and sort of the more critical the dependency pulling those dependencies as close as possible. So do I need to get my fish cleaned in China? Um, no, uh, that's absurd. So, right, so I can get my fish, I can, well, I could catch my own fish for one. If I don't, then I can go to my local fishermen and, and, and they can be cleaned as locally as possible. For my dairy and meat, I can talk to my neighbors and, and the farms down the street and just start a conversation. How does that work? How do, how do you do that? So this is the most important aspect of what, what I call localism that I think we need to start all uh, practicing more of, which is just identify that, wow, we have these long range centralized dependencies um, on critical things like food, like materials that we build shelters out of, all, all these things. And, and just becoming conscious of those and being willing to frankly spend a little more money up front to purchase from who is essentially your neighbor or as close to your neighbor as possible. And, and one of the things that I think comes out of this is it feels like you're spending more, but frankly, for, for us, we spend a lot less money now because we, we buy meat in bulk, et cetera, et cetera. And also as you put currency into your local situation, all of the side effects from the people around you prospering, doing better, you experience all that. That's your local environment. When you send your dollar off to Walmart and it goes wherever the hell it goes, um, you're never going to experience the, the positive externalities of that, of that extra dollar. So, so those are some of the ideas. None of that was a definition, but maybe just some additional discussion on the idea. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. 
Well, Ashley, why don't why don't we um, let's get into so so you decided to move to Uruguay. Uh, so you you had gotten a, a PhD in environmental sociology, and then you decided to move to Uruguay. So so what made you choose uh, to to move there, and how did you how did you choose it? What were your criteria, and what has been your experience developing this experiential learning school? Um, okay, so to to move to Uruguay. Um, I just kind of saw the writing on the wall in the US. I just, I studied abroad in Rome and I just like had collapse, being in the center of a collapsing empire on the front of my mind and just thought, I don't know, maybe not. Um, if I had if I had certain structural things in the US, um, including like a super robust family network um, and or like land or people I knew who were connected to land or livelihoods, I might've stayed, um, but I didn't have any of those things. Um, and so I was trying to search for a place and the main criteria was just stability. And I was thinking, um, you know, if I wanna have kids, I wanna bring them to a place where they can have like a nice childhood where I'm not swimming against, swimming upstream their entire childhood, like fighting with the school district or fighting with whatever social structures are out there that like could potentially damage them. Um, and so I, I had like a whole list of criteria that were very nerdy, like sea level rise, uh, natural disasters, soil quality, water, water access, um, political structures, universal healthcare, universal education, um, those kinds of things. And then there's the quantitative. And so I had a short list. Um, ease of immigration is a huge one because it's not that easy to immigrate places and it's getting harder to go most places in the world. Um, and then there's the qualitative like experience of the place. So we the, the two places my husband and I visited before choosing Uruguay were Costa Rica and then Uruguay. Costa Rica didn't make the cut um, because too many volcanoes <laughs> um, and too many like farms built into hillsides that like are just one mudslide away from, um, you know, washing away. So, uh, and then we went to Uruguay in 2012. We came here to this property and like looked at property uh, at that time and bought this land in 2012 that went back to the US until 2016 to like finish graduate degrees and save money. Um, what was the second part of the question? Um, and then you what, not, not, started the field about school. The, yeah, the, you, you started a, a field school. And so I'm yes. just curious, like, what is what is kind of the, the idea what is the field it? school? Mm -hmm. Yeah. OK, so um, so then I'm thinking like so I'm in grad school. I know I've got this land in Uruguay. I'm like, uh, you know what? I'm going to go move there. What am I going to do to make a living besides potentially online teaching, which is like getting more and more um of an option um and i thought like why not use my phd to foment experiential learning for students i had this like aha moment in grad school um where we where we read a paper about scientists studying salmon two groups of scientists studying salmon one group did computer models about how a dam would impact salmon populations and another one went and counted salmon <laughs> and the, obviously the second one was more accurate much more accurate and i just thought like we need to just get out into the world like we just need to get out into the world that's just i, I need to get out of academia i got to get out of this classroom i need to like 
get out and do stuff. Um, so I thought like, let's try, let me try to get students here working with Uruguayan farmers, um, actually experiencing what it's like to be a farmer, a small scale agroecological farmer, and then to have like a back and forth conversation. And the whole idea of the field school, there are people come on short trips pre-pandemic, obviously. Um, and the whole day they're working on projects identified by i say like uruguayan farmers but they're really just like my friends and community here because this is like you know i actually just know the people and everybody knows each other here which is also good because it gives me an excuse to get to know them more which is part of my theory of social change just make an excuse to get to know people in your area people want to get to know each other um, they just need to like a reason to start talking. Otherwise it's kind of awkward. Um, so anyways, this gave me an excuse to start talking to people. And I said like, I'm gonna host these student groups. You have projects that like 12 or 13 kids could work on over the course of a few days. And they would identify these projects. And that's really key because there's like a lot of volunteerism, like we're gonna come in and build something for you uh, with our unskilled labor that's gonna fall apart in like a week. Instead it was like, you know, identified by the farmers themselves. And the, the fact that the students actually um, do the work during the day is super key. It's not just like them visiting the farms um, and seeing it and like taking a tour. It's like, no, please, please get down and pull these weeds. <laughs> um, and then they like have to have this embodied experience that like gives them new insights that they wouldn't have thought of. And the pedagogical approach is like, just have these different experiences um, and see, see what happens to you. What questions arise? What do you think? And I was always thinking like, they're gonna see what a small scale livelihood is like. They're gonna see like how connection to the material world is important for understanding like man nature connection. And they do get that to some extent, but the thing that they always want to talk about at the end of the day is the social. Um, so like on these farms, the friend, friends and uncles and aunts show up, the kids are there working together with the families. And then like an aunt will come by and just take the kid off to her house for a while. And it's like this social fabric um, really makes the whole thing work. Um, and the students see that and they constantly love talking about it. Um, and to me, like, you know, basically that that is such an important insight and that has really influenced my thinking too, um, even beyond my my dissertation and book research um, that, you know, the, the, it's not just the ecological because I can get really nerdy about the environmental stuff, but the social stuff is just as important. So anyways, yeah, the basic idea is that the, the students experience things, they have insights and then we talk about it you know, what they're seeing each night and they kind of process what they're seeing. And then the idea is like, don't, you don't have to do exactly what you're seeing, but take the principles back with you um, mm -hmm. to your life. Like what, what, what are you, what, what are the overarching things that make these different systems possible? Um, and how can you incorporate any of that into your daily life? Nice. Um, and I think maybe, uh, Albert, I'll, you know, you, you can you can help me decide as well. So so maybe I'll ask one more question and then we'll open it up for kind of a, a larger discussion. Uh, and the question I want to ask is that you are uh, thinking of building an app or you're starting to build an app, uh, a, a localism app, or I think it's, did you say un-Amazon or something? 
Um, not and, Amazon, yeah. Not, not Amazon app. Um, and it's meant, so let me let me give a, a, a bad summary and then you can give a, a good summary. It's, it's meant <laughs> to okay. uh, help you connect with people in your area to exchange goods and services with um, maybe, you know, up until the point where the app itself becomes irrelevant because then you know your neighbors. Um, yeah. Or maybe not. I don't know. So I'll, I'll, I'll get I'll let you. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I, I was like having a, an informal conversation with an acquaintance like a few months ago and just like thinking about all these different insights um, and experiences I've had, I kind of had this like radical aha moment when I was at uh, an art artisan market here in Uruguay, where my daughters, um, there's this one person who makes hand makes dolls. And I knew that she she made these dolls. And I had her make little dolls for my daughters. One, the oldest one is blonde. And the second one is uh, as a redhead. And I made had her make um, little dolls, a little blonde one and a little redhead. And she gave them these dolls for, they celebrate Th Three Kings Day here. Um, and the look of joy on their face and then her face, I was like, this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced. I don't even really know this woman, but it's just such a cool thing. They're playing with this doll. It's, it's specific to them. They feel so special um, and so loved that this is made. And then this woman feels so loved and appreciated for making this thing. She also just makes money. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, connected. It's just this win, win, win moment. And I just thought like, what is the best way for me to, like make that happen in the U.S. more because here in Uruguay it's it's basically widespread. I mean, I would, less so in the in the big cities, obviously, but um, these kinds of interactions and small scale livelihoods are pretty um, are pretty common. But how do we like leverage people's phone addiction and consumer addiction to like get them actually to buy um, this kind of way? And then and then there's all these other kind of unintended consequences that I saw from my um, my field research and here in Uruguay, um, the, re the, the experiential learning, which is that when people have some excuse to get together um, with one another, and in this case, the, the initial excuse is just consumerism. And you tell people, whatever is the reason you're drawn to it, maybe you like nice bespoke things. That's fine, use this local app. Maybe you're afraid of the global uh, supply chains breaking down. That's fine, use this app. Like, like I said, it could be a hundred different reasons why people might wanna use a localist app, um, but it gives them an excuse to connect with somebody else who's making something in their community. But my secret that now it's recorded um, and will be posted on the internet is that I know um, from my, my dissertation research that once these people start connecting with one another, the, the innovation that results and the cross-pollination of ideas that results, it, you can't stop it once they start connecting with one another. So like the chicken keepers connected with one another and then one of them's a beekeeper and now they all get bees because they see mm. somebody who has bees and they like get this idea like, why can't I keep bees? And it just kind of goes on from there. Um, so the idea is basically to just like, there's a lot of different localized commerce websites that are just basically lists. Um, there are 
ones that kind of like curate local goods and, and, and send them to you. But to me, I was thinking this could be like extremely large umbrella. Anyone can buy and sell on it, almost like Airbnb where you like wouldn't have thought to rent a room out of your house until there was a platform to do so. It's like you wouldn't have thought to make little dolls, bespoke dolls for kids uh, until there was a platform where you see you could make 10 bucks a doll or whatever. And then it just can kind of foment from there, or that's, or that's at least my vision. Um, right now, it's actually just, it's in the exploratory stage. I think I might have a list website built soon, where, which just will start to get people's interest in thinking about like, what are the local businesses in my area? How do I support them? That kind of thing. Um, but the e-commerce is yet to be built. And I am just a sociologist. I have no idea about business or tech really. And I am actually a little bit afraid to be honest about um, just starting this with the wrong principles or like with the wrong infrastructure because I'm ignorant and then it turning into something that I don't want it to be or that is ugly or unethical because I'm, I'm so ignorant about these things. So I'm curious to hear from people about like what you might suggest in terms of ethical business structures or like tips for building tech. Like I know there's a million different ideas out there and um, I have the big picture idea of like what I want to see happen and how I can, I, I can see a platform that's very simple and very obvious and easy to use for regular people. Uh, and I don't mean that in a mean, in a bad way. I mean, regular people in a good way, just like, you know, more mainstream groups, not just the choir. Um, but to get from point A to point B, I'm, I'm happy to take um, input. Great. Um, well, uh, Albert, if it's okay with you, maybe maybe we open it up for for discussion. I don't know. Maybe Albert, do you want to? Do, do you have a, a usual way that you you format this? Uh, I mean, we could do it uh, anyway. But um, yeah, I mean, um, I would like to offer uh, anyone um, in the audience. Um, do you have any particular thoughts for Ashley, or have any questions um, about the Sulafor? Sulafir app or, or about Rhizome in general. But yeah, I mean, like, I'm just going to give like my own question here. And if anyone has any thoughts, just type it in the chat and I'll call on you and you could give your, um, uh, uh, give, give, give your question or your, your take. Um, so I was, uh, uh, thinking like you, you mentioned like the not, the not Amazon thing. Right. And like, um, how you wanted to do it where like, for example, like there were other projects, um, that were mentioned before, um, while we are uh, like co-creating this session and you're like, you know, that, that sounds good, but I want to meet people where they're at. Right. Like you don't want to like throw all these things, um, like uh, on top of people. Cause it seems like, um, from, from what I gather that they're just not going to accept it. It's just too, too high of a barrier. And perhaps I don't know, this local regenerative thing is maybe a, a like, you know, there's just like a learning curve with that in general. And to add something on top of that uh, would be like, you know, a little bit much. So I just wanted to know like your particular thoughts and your research on uh, what uh, had you come to this conclusion? 
Yeah. Um, I, so I kind of, um, before I did my dissertation, I've told the story a bunch, but like, um, I wanted to just talk to other people like me and I would, I would say like me is I'm, I'm from a working class background, but I'm a city person. I'm from Chicago. You know, um, I got educated through the, you know, rose through the ranks of, of, you know, academia. And, uh, and so I would like now consider myself this sort of at least urban based or urban raised elite environmentalist. And I wanted to talk to people who were like me um, in my study. I was like, yeah, I'll just talk to like community gardeners and stuff. And I had a fellow grad student say like, what you're talking about, you're studying subsistence food production. You're only talking to like urban people who are like relatively new to this. Why wouldn't you talk to rural people? And that, um, I, I thought it was a good idea. So I, um, I talked to, to rural people and basically it changed my whole perspective because you know if you stay within these little bubbles of like environmentalism or elite elite elitism or um you know kind of city city centric or you know urban centric or urban professional class you only get a certain set of insights about like what solutions are possible or what solutions people might like um but when you start talking to people outside of that it's pretty easy to see um, that a lot of those solutions are just like really weird to normal people. Um, I think like alternative currencies, for example, are very alienating to a normal person. Like I think alternative currencies can come to existence when fiat currency is like faltering at a certain point. And then it's like obvious to people that we need some sort of alternative currency system. I think up until that point, people will just do informal bartering and trading um, and using regular fiat currency to the extent that they can. Because like buying into an alternative currency takes a lot of trust and like understanding what that means and who are these people and what is this. Um, so yeah, so I think just like getting outside of my social comfort zone really helped me to understand what like what it is, quote unquote, normal people might be willing to to accept. Mm. Yeah, and I, I definitely resonate with that because it's funny because like you mentioned like the digital tokens and that, that's what like one of the things we were talking about before in like the Discord and I was like, I'm actually, I've been into the crypto space for a long time and crypto is on everyone's mind right now because uh, Elon, how dare you? But yeah, he's kind of like <laughs> sending everyone on a rocket by himself. But I mean, even, even myself, like when people, hey, let's have a digital token. Sometimes I think about Nordic Nomads. I want to like have, create our own little like like circular economy with tokens even i was like you know I, I got the green tech sector i worked in tech startups even that is like really like intimidating for me so when even if, it's, if that's intimidating for me you, you know like imagine what it's like for you know someone like you know you know like out in like west virginia and just being like hey i'm, I'm trying to just do my thing over here and now you want me to add in all this right. other tech like how are we could get this to people so i definitely resonate with that and um yeah, I believe uh, we can move on to our first question. Uh, Chris D, uh, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question to our lovely guest? <laughs> oh, are you there, Chris D? He says, read. Oh, yeah, read on my behalf. Okay, yeah. So, okay. So, uh, regards to, to your app, I feel like you're going in a cool direction by emphasizing place in addition to products and services. Uh, so, that's what I feel is missing from most apps. Um, a lot of them are quite transactional. Do you have any ideas on how you would uh, get that local feel, maybe uh, region pages? Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, um, I hadn't thought that much about this. Maybe Jason might want to th help me think through like how it might play out. But I imagine you um, you get people like it's baby steps always with these things. So like you get people just like dipping their toe in the water on connect like buying things locally um and then it could potentially open up their mind to the possibility of actually getting like a a, a significant portion of their consumer goods and the most necessary consumer goods locally um and then i imagine maybe there's like this opening up of consciousness about like oh okay so i know that there are you know within the chicago land area i can get beef from this you know, this far out in Kankakee in the southern side of the rural part of the city, a uh, rural part of the, the whole region. But um, I need to go a little bit further, maybe to Wisconsin to get a uh, certain fruit or something like that, that's specific or whatever. So I imagine there, there could be like a, 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 an iterative process where people like, you know, buy one or two things, and it's sort of this gateway drug into like, understanding what's potential what the potential is in their region. I also want to say part of the thing I have in mind is that um, not only changing consumer consciousness, but changing uh, producers uh, or individuals who are sitting at home and looking for some sort of livelihood and want to have some meaning in their life can start imagining ways to make meaning by producing for the people in their in their locality and selling that way, like this woman who made the dolls that, that I mentioned. Um, and my fantasy is that it turns into these guilds of like some person is a woodworker or whatever. And then they see, you know, somebody sees this woodworker selling things on there and said like, can I be your apprentice? And now we've got two woodworkers in, in the region like learning from one another and it just kind of spirals from there. I don't know, Jason, do you have anything to add? Uh, I don't. I think that was what, very well said. <laughs> okay, awesome. And uh, we could move on. Um, let me see. Michael ben. Has Michael has called. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, Michael, one second. Uh, we'll get to your question. Ben, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Good. I'll, I'll defer to Michael. Let Michael go. Okay, sure. Michael, please go ahead and ask your question. Great stuff, Ashley. I did something like this many years ago. <laughs> Um, sort of local buy and sell, whatever. Every connection counts. Connect, connect, connect. That's where you're starting. Second point is, how does the connection work? Two considerations. Are both parties feeling good after mm. the transaction? Mm. Is it a feel-good experience? If so, there's a tendency for the connection to be sticky. Second consideration, what is the spin onwards after the connection? Does it move to another connection? Do the connections converge into pattern? Mm. If you're using conventional money, it's a hell of a job because conventional money will just go away. It does not connect. It's a colonial mm. artifact. For relationship money, you need a money that moves locally, connects locally, and then generosity is natural. Mm. Without that, we're all fucked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We cooperate or we've had it. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I could, changing yeah. the tools of our interaction. Now, you said a lot of things about how difficult it is. It is not difficult getting people to shop local, to spend local, to use a local coupon. Here's one, for instance, that we used in our pub, a fiver issued by the local pub and the local baker. Uh, QR code, that sort of stuff, all the bits. Cost damn all. The pub donates to the fire department. So all you have to do to keep the money moving locally is you go to the pub, you buy this money, cash goes to the fire department, you spend the money, you get beer. Is this complicated? No, no. I mean, I think... I think it, my sense is, where is my role in all this? I feel a little bit strange trying to um, invent a local currency myself, but I imagine that there's a possibility now that you're saying this yeah. to make this, make this platform like, um, just open. I, I had the idea already to make it a fiat currency is a is is one option on there um no, but then also fr free don't or barter or barter don't I, touch I, I i feel strongly about letting normal people use money but then what if like within the network of people who already are like getting to know each other they autonomously start with these kind of bucks and then there's more and more people like who they can access because they've gotten to this gateway drug on the on this idea of yeah, you know local it, local when, shopping when pay, pay it forward becomes pay it round yeah the pay yeah it forward thing yeah it beats pay it back pay it back's dead it's a, it's a bong bong done pay yesterday it, i was i was floating the idea round gives you pattern and pattern is the essence of all life form watch the pattern mm. What makes pattern? What holds pattern? What pattern makes sense? What sense makes patterns? Hmm. Enough of me. Thank you. <laughs> Jason, you want to say something? Go I, ahead. Was, I was just going to make a, a dumb joke. Yesterday, I was floating the idea of chicken coin, where, you know, <laughs> chicken eggs, if you have a distributed chicken keeping, is sound currency. It's sound money. That, that, that's my dumb joke. So. No, I actually love that though because I can't imagine. Because what I was what I'm kind of envisioning is that it, this thing is just like a, a catch-all for people to actually meet each other. And then um, I mean, really, truly, in the chicken keepers in, in, that I studied in Chicago, they actually did. They actually do like deal in and chicken coops and roosters and eggs like that's that's real but that's like mm. they're really bartering those things um and so i'm i'm like i'm i'm a yes for all of it like i just want to facilitate anything that comes of it you got it but i want it to be like autonomously self-determined bottom-up make sense with the local culture kind of thing not like i've determined as a top-down tech overlord that you're all going to use chicken coin and you can only trade you know eggs for what you know what i mean so um but yeah i say yes to all of it i think michael i i take your point it it makes sense awesome thanks so much everyone for your input uh ben would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question yeah i'm so glad i let michael go first because um <laughs> i think we're on the same page and um 
Um, I'm going to try to rein myself in, but I'm so excited to be in a group where we're talking about these things because um, this is stuff that I've been thinking about for a long time and, and trying to figure out, you know, how do you put it in place? And, um, and one of the things is I think actually circling back to this idea of localism and bioregionalism and, um, and building on Michael's idea of the pattern, pattern generation. Um, there's a fantastic book called Humankind by Rucker Bregman. And, um, you know, it, we are, I, and I, I also am a sociologist um, and I'm a social psychologist. And one of the things is, um, you know, we are hardwired for cooperation. We are hardwired for connection. And, um, and, and really, you know, what's one of the hallmarks of a colonial system is systematically breaking down the ability to connect. And so the reason I call myself an apocalyptimist, so I was naturally in, intrigued by the Doomer optimist and um, but one of the things that we need to break down are these preconceptions about how it's supposed to work and what people are open to and what people are afraid of. And mm. um, but and also, I think this idea that you like you were talking about earlier, I totally agree this that we have to have this ideology and, um, uh, you know, uh, the plan. This is how it's going to work. And, and that's actually why I think you know, play around with a, um, an app, but it's gotta be bottom up, right? And actually mm -hmm. the problem with apps is that you, you kind of predetermine how they're gonna be used because you have to mm. design them in a certain way. Instead, I think it's like, you know, have, and, and I think to Michael's point about how do you anticipate the pattern? How do you make sure that you create the one good experience and then you, you anticipate how to extend that experience. So it's like, if the first taste was free, here's where the second taste is. And, um, and for my money, sociocracy 3.0 is, um, is a, it's, it's about, it's not about what the solution is. It's about a process that we can engage in for determining what, what's working and what's not. And, and it, and it strips away ideology. You know, it's not about, anyone's ideas are good, but then you, you kind of test it through practice. Um, but I think that that's, you know, a lot of what we're talking, well, from, for, from where I'm coming from, um, that the, what, why I am hopeful about collapse is that I think a lot of what's collapsing is these, um, these wrong ideas, these wrong ideologies that we carry around. And when we strip that away, I think solutions will just start to pop up, you know? Um, oh, but yeah. uh, somebody, had a, somebody had a comment about the tools are all there. It's just, they're guarded by our thoughts and, you know, a hundred percent. And anyhow, I, I'll stop now just cause I, I, I'm just excited to, to be here in this group and maybe talking about these things. And so, how do we keep this conversation going on? I've had a good positive first experience. How do we build on this pattern? Right, okay, yeah. Well, I'll defer that answer to Albert because he is a real host extraordinaire and like hype man. But um, so one thing that I will ask you maybe to respond back to me, Ben, is um, the way I see uh, localism um, is that there's going to be some good experiences, but some things are going to feel shitty at first. For example, it's going to feel a little bit inconvenient or weird 
to talk to people, <laughs> to actually have human contact and be expected to like be polite and um, and to like challenge your ideology about the the quote unquote alt, alt like you know opposite political ideology neighbor you have. Um, and you're gonna have to actually be physically uncomfortable too, because the way I see it, like uh, we're probably gonna have to move around in space a little bit more. Um, some of these things like are kind of coming and people are gonna have to deal with it. But then once you get over the hump, cause I'm kind of on the far side of that hump, it's so much better than like sitting on your computer and not talking to anyone. But we're made to think that like this is the best possible thing um, is to not move and to not be inconvenienced at all. So I'm wondering how do we like, how do you think about that? Because you're gonna have to push people out of their comfort zone to get where we're going. They're gonna get pushed out of their comfort zone into very scary places, COC as we say in Spanish, yes or yes. But, um, but you know, like, how do you deal with that? Because the, the first thing might not just be like my experience with my daughters and the and the dolls. Like, the reason that happened is I got out of my comfort zone. I had to speak to this woman in Spanish and figure out like how to have that conversation to ask for these dolls. And like that, this, all this stuff su sucks. It's hard for me. Um, but then like, there's such a big payoff at the end. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts about that. Um. Well, one, I mean, that's that's actually think why collapse is a good thing. And, and you know, the pandemic has been a, a godsend in many ways because it's disrupted people's normal patterns. And and one of the things with isolation is people are starting to recognize how important human contact is and how the of all the essential things that they're missing, people are, you know, first on the list. And um and I find I do my I make my money as a facilitator and um, and what basically if you set the table uh, and so in that discomfort I think um, somebody had a quote about that half the world is waiting for the other half to say hi and, um, <laughs> and and it's totally true if you just set the table for people to show up authentically they do and um yeah. and then once they have that experience they're hungry for it and they've been missing it mm -hmm. the you know this whole time and um so i don't think and and you know partly one of the facilitation tricks is um it's called psychological inoculation where you say this is going to be uncomfortable and people are like okay <laughs> and you know well, all you all you need to do is kind of say you know we're going to do things a little different and here's why and it might be uncomfortable. And are you willing to go with me that far? And and very rarely are people not willing to engage that way. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like the people who, you know, you were saying, Ashley, you're kind of on the far end of it. You're coming out the other side. Reach a hand back. And, you know, you're the one who can talk to you six months ago or you three years ago or you six years ago you know where you were and you can identify people who are maybe in that same headspace and then talk to them like you would talk to yourself. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. that's one of the, the fundamental things is we have this, we're constantly being told everyone is so different. You know, there's this constant othering that, you know, you, you have these fears, everyone else is okay, or everyone else has got their act together or, you know, all this, or, or they're a complete basket case and, you can't even start talking to them because they're going to talk crazy. And um, anyhow, it's I, I don't think it's as big a deal as you think it is. I think it's really just about 
creating the, be the 50% who say hi to the 50% who are waiting for someone to say hi to them. I, I mean, that's, and this is like one person talking, but um, that's, that's what I would say. That'd be my answer. Cool. And Albert, do you have a, an answer to the question of how do we keep the conversation going? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Of course. I'm always posting the Nordic Nomads Discord link in the chat. I'm probably going to post it about five more times before uh, we're through. But yeah, I mean, awesome. Definitely, Ben. I'd love to have you join us. Everyone here, uh, love to have you join us. And uh, thank you so much, Ben. Now we can move to the other Ben. Ben Blunt, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Uh, hi, I had a question for Jason. Um, I'm sorry in advance if it's kind of an annoying theoretical question that might turn out to only really exist in my head. Um, but I think uh, lots of people, at least in the uh, political environments that I'm reading online uh, on the left, there's a lot of scepticism towards, you know, localism and um, projects that try to kind of, you know, co cooperate uh, with uh, nature and see that as um, a route to sustainability. Um, and I was just wondering, I think it kind of relates to some stuff you were talking about at the uh, beginning of the call to do with kind of sense making and things like that. Um, I was wondering how you think we can best respond to people with more Promethean intuitions who think that, you know, nature is something to be overcome rather than something to be, you know, cooperated with. Uh, thanks. Yeah, that's... Uh... Eco-modernism, I think, is is a term for, for that. Um, this idea that, you know, uh, if we just keep inventing more technology, we'll finally learn how to how to, you know, be sustainable or, or get along with nature. Um, I guess my response is, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not anti-technology, but I think we have to think about like what is appropriate technology, and we have to come at it from a paradigm that, you know, that we're not separate. From nature we are part of nature uh, and we're the part of nature that's currently bespoiling the rest of nature um, and you know uh, we can think about technology for example decentralized solar technology uh, zoom or some other decentralized alternative that allows us all to connect from different places like these are all for 21st century regenerative localism uh, in order for us not to just break down into a new dark ages uh, we're going to need this, these kinds of technologies, um, you know, GIS, uh, Earth Observatory Systems, those are also really helpful to, uh, you know, find bioregional coherence and figure out, you know, uh, various flows um, in the environment. Uh, and so I think it's not really a question of is technology good or bad is, you know, but but it's, you know, how do we, how do we utilize technology to be part, you know, a co-participant of nature and, and, and ecology uh, instead of taking this dominator paradigm, you know, this colonial paradigm towards, towards nature. Um, you know, I think there's some people that just aren't going to be convinced. I, I interact with a lot of, I interact a lot with, with some of them online, you know, what, what I would call like the techno-optimists or techno-utopians. And you know, I think their moonshot is, well, we just got to get nuclear going. We're going to have plenty of energy and then we're going to get the carbon sequestration technologies going and, oh, biodiversity. Oh, we'll invent that. We'll put it on a microchip and then we'll, you know, introduce it. Um, and, you know, uh, perhaps they're right, but I seriously doubt it. Um, 
I, I don't know. Do, do you want to follow up? I don't know if I answered your question well or not. Um, you know, it's more that I am, um, I mean, I'm very, uh, far less well read than you will be on all these things, I suppose. Um, you know, I'm more interested. Well, um, I agree with lots of what you're saying, but sometimes I find it hard to persuade myself that if I had to, I could, you know, provide adequate justification for the kind of, you know, what you're talking about as in, you know, we're part of nature and things like that like aesthetically and temperamentally that's something that I kind of could nod my head to you know really easily and it's something I really wish I could fully believe you know that I uh, if I had to could talk some sort of you know techno-utopian out of but I don't know if I could but perhaps uh, you know other people want to ask questions so thanks. Well I'm curious if anyone else has an answer to Ben's to Ben's question. Um, I can I can take a shot at it and then let it go to somebody else. Also, I think it just relates back to this doomer optimist thing, which is if I could use an example that can help illustrate the point. Um, so like uh, these impossible burgers, for example, I would say that's like a product of eco-modernism. You think you can like engineer your way out of um, the food problems <laughs> and problems of industrial agriculture. Um, but a lot of those are built on um, very highly processed and, and, and industrial processes that are doing the same thing as, you know, every other form of industrial agriculture. Um, however, the optimist part comes from like people who buy into the, the impossible burger thing as like the solution. Um, they're not going to, there's not going to be impossible burgers as a widespread thing because there's only a certain amount of soil that can be eroded through these processes. And then we're going to have to like switch different ways, like, like I said at the beginning of making food. So um, I think there are structural ways in which eco-modernism will fail. And I feel very bad for those people who have bought into it because they think like, they're putting their whole hope in technology and not really exploring this other world. And they're going to come down the hardest, I think, and crash the hardest and in, in like down to reality of, you know, and material reality and like having to acquaint themselves with the material conditions of their existence. Um, so, but I don't know, it's somewhat optimistic because <laughs> I don't think those things will last long. Um, Joe, did you want to say something? I'll just kind of piggyback on what you're saying, which is that, Pretty much you can't convince anybody of anything, but reality can, <laughs> reality will. So part of one, one of the reasons that I'm interested in localism is from a risk mitigation standpoint. The more we're centralized at a global scale or at very large scales, the more when something stops working, something does fail, the, the bigger that, that impact is and the bigger that fallout will be. So, so this is really just repeating things actually already said, but I think the focus now needs to be on building and maintaining parallel institutions, you might call them. That almost sounds a little too formal. Really just relationships and, and focus on the informal side of things. In, in every situation throughout history where there's been some centralized structure that has constrained things too far to be workable, there's been parallel shadow institutions, shadow uh, systems and behaviors that have actually dealt with those problems to the point where, where I learned even from, from someone in one of my courses, uh, you know, they lived through through things going on in, in the Balkans and all of that. And they had uh, all the businesses had two sets of books 
They had the official state books of, you know, uh, you know, purchase orders, all of that. And then the real ones where they were actually doing the trading. And so these kinds of things, this is how we need to think about things. Okay. There's this kind of bullshit uh, legacy system that we all know ain't working. And so instead of trying to change that, we need to be ready for it to collapse and, and already be having things in motion. And, you know, this is one of the things that, that is sort of, sort of tangential here, but like, um, we use words and we use the same words for different things that are in fact different. When we talk about things like revolutions, one of the reasons the American revolution actually kind of worked is because it wasn't really a revolution in the usual sense. There was already a uh, initially informal and then later a more formal set of economic and social relationships that were getting established in North America by, by those who had colonized. And they sort of said, okay, now time to cut the, cut the cord. It wasn't that they remade everything real quick and, oh, it happened to work. Turns out you can't do that. Um, John Gall, a uh, famous systems thinker, talked about that. And, you know, you can't really build a complex system from scratch. You need to start with a simple one and then start elaborating and adding new relationships, adding complexity. So we need to, for a lot of us, at least for people like myself, we have to start from the simplest, simplest foundation. And for me, that was things like, okay, let's get some laying hands. Okay, let's put up a fence, you know, do the basic, most basic things, things that we've never done. Um, and, and then kind of start from there and then, you know, help my neighbor, you know, sh sh help with his pigs and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I don't think you're going to convince anybody, to be honest. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, thanks, but thanks. That was, uh, that was helpful. Uh, yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joe, Ashley, Jason. Um, I believe that's all the questions uh, we have for today. But wow, what a discussion. And uh, I mean, if um, maybe we could go around uh, if you have any closing thoughts for us as we move to a more bioregenerative localized future. And perhaps, Jason, would you like to start us off? Closing thoughts. Well, I, I feel like I learned a lot from just what, what so many people were talking about. Um, and so I'm still, I'm still kind of absorbing it. Like, I feel like my body is kind of like, you know, I'm having this embodied processing going on. So um, I don't, I don't really have anything pithy to say. I'm just, I'm just processing, you know, all of, all of these, you know, uh, wise experienced people and uh, what they have to say. And Hopefully, you know, in my own in my own area, I actually found that Benjamin Loomis. We live in the Boone area together, so just made a connection. So that's great. With the and he was, he talked about the High Country Food Hub. Uh, so hey, that something practical might actually, you know, come out of this. Hopefully, hopefully many practical things come out of it. But it's definitely food for thought for me to like, you know, the pandemic. We've been in this new place for about a year, a year. This little homestead that we're starting, and the pandemic is kind of prevented us from really getting to know people. Um, but I'm really kind of chomping at the bit to, to do what, what we're talking about and to, to build those, you know, relationships, even when it's uncomfortable, um, and to encourage other people to do the same. So I guess that's what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, and Ashley, uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say after this uh, very interesting uh, session we've had today. Uh, I'm so happy to, I'm also learning. I'm so happy to be in these little circles. I've like literally come to know these different groups that I feel like there's like the Stoa noetic, noetic nomads. And then there's, there's like the systems thinkers groups. There's all these, like, I don't know, converging groups that exist and that like kind of spontaneously formed, it seemed over the last year. 
And to me, it kind of feels like the movie um, Children of Men, where there's all these like kind of religious cults that arise to, to make sense of um, the loss of human fertility. But these feel a, a little more healthy than that. But um, I just like, I like, I, I really like that all of these people have kind of converged and come to exist and are like trying to make sense. I like the sense maker um, word. And I also am just like, I'm, I'm absorbing so much so quickly and, and trying to like make it make sense in the way I already think of the world. So I'm, I'm very grateful for all of you and like all of our interactions. Um, one other closing comment I want to make that, um, I think might be helpful to people is that again, going in line with like thinking about social change, a lot of times it feels almost, um, impossible to start because like, what if I screw up? What if this isn't the right way to start? What if I did this wrong? Like I just got cattle. I'm from the South side of Chicago. I grew up in the city of Chicago. My dad is a fireman. I don't know what I'm doing at all, at all. But, um, I just did it. I like read enough and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to get cattle. I'm going to try to do regenerative agriculture along with all the other stuff I'm interested in. Um, and it's really scary, but it's okay to be imperfect and to not know everything and to not know the outcome of the 4D, 4D chess of life. Uh, that's okay. So like, I would just leave everybody with that because it's, um, it's impossible to know all those things. All you can do, like from a very Taoist perspective, is to make the best decision you can with the information you currently have and, and every, everything that makes you who you are. So just just, just be okay, don't be par paralyzed. <laughs> yeah, that's it, Ashley. You just uh, stated what I did with Nordic Nomads. If you go back to episode one of Nordic Nomads, go watch the intro. I'm like, this is the inaugural episode of Nordic Nomads. I have no idea what I'm doing. And then now here I'm today. I still have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm learning on the job. So that's what yeah. it is, people. We're all learning. We're all co-creating. And we are all like, we are all LARPing also. This is like very important to, to like live action role play. We're all just like pretending until like we do it enough. And then I'm like Homesteader Ashley, which I'm really just like still, uh, you know, like this Chicagoan, you know, who spends a decent amount of time on the computer and, and like doing sociology and thinking and writing and stuff. But like, so it's okay. Just, just LARP for a while. We're all, we're all doing that. Yeah. Awesome. Continue the LARPing. And uh, that's it. Thanks so much, Ashley and Jason for coming here today. Your insights are really appreciated by all of us, including myself. Like I'm very much new to the scene, as I stated, uh, I, I'm a zygote, but uh, these are ideas, uh, which are ones which resonate more and more with me by the day. So again, thanks so much, Ashley, Jason, uh, Joe, uh, Michael, the Benz, and everyone for all your input on co-creating this more beautiful future. And let's continue this conversation and collaboration over at the Noetic Nomads Discord, where you can connect with fellow radical thinkers and doers co-creating a more beautiful future and definitely check out Ashley's projects at rhizomafieldschool.com and sulufair.com coming soon again with the help of everyone here and the collaboration <laughs> links are all in the chat so that's it for our session on Doomer Optimists Unite systems change bioregionalism and localism but it's only the start of something more wonderful let's start sowing these seeds and germinating local regenerative cultures all over starting right here at home. So that's it. Peace out, everyone, cool. and step up because the world needs you. Okay, goodbye.
goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you. Wow, that was some Texas Albert. Thank you. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you.